The following is a ministry of City Life Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. We hope you find this teaching encouraging and instructive. Perhaps you are currently a follower of Christ or are perplexed, skeptical, or even antagonistic to Christianity. Regardless, we would love to hear from you. Please contact us at info at citylifetc.org. Thank you for listening, and please contact us if we can be of service to you. Peace be with you. Good morning. Our first scripture reading comes from Exodus 3, 13 through 18. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the Lord and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our second reading comes from Matthew 8, 28, 16-20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to say to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Thank you, Hannah and Ellie, reading this Bible so well. I want you to pursue me. I want you to be curious about my heart. I want you to know me better than anyone else. Those are all uh, comments my wife of nine months has made to me regarding her thoughts about what it means for me to love her as her husband. And those comments are a reminder to me that uh, you cannot love someone you do not know. And that in fact, the desire and the effort 
To know someone more and more is one of the most important ways in which we express our love and our delight in them. And this uh, important truth about our relationships with one another is, of course, based on what is true about our relationship with God. In the Gospels, Jesus Uh, says that the first and greatest commandment, the thing that God wants from us more than anything else, is that we would love Him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and strength. But again, you cannot love God truly if you do not know God truly. And therefore, it's not surprising that also in in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And in a similar way, the great Protestant reformer John Calvin, at the beginning in the preface of his magnum opus, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, writes, Today all sorts of subjects are eagerly pursued, but the knowledge of God is neglected. This was written in the 1500s, by the way. And yet to know God is man's chief end and justifies his existence. Even if a hundred lifetimes were ours, this one aim would be sufficient for them all. And so then, how do we know God in order that we might love Him and delight in Him in the way that He desires? And the answer, of course, is that because of who God is, we can only know Him when He reveals Himself, when He makes Himself known to us. And one of the most important ways in which God reveals Himself to us is through the names of Himself that He gives us in Holy Scripture. So, if you will, uh, turn with me to that first passage that Hannah read for us in Exodus chapter 3. And let's just look at verses 13 through 15 again. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel... And say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. <clears throat> so if you know the Bible, or if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, you know the, uh, the background to this story, right? So Moses has been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years with his sheep because even though he was adopted uh, by the princess of Egypt and was raised to be the prince of Egypt, he murdered an Egyptian man who was mistreating one of his fellow Hebrews, who of course was a slave. And so Moses has been wandering in the wilderness as a shepherd for 40-some years, and he finds himself, coincidentally, on Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, he sees this bush that's on fire, right? And it's weird because the bush is on fire, but it's not burning up like you would expect. He goes over to see what's happening. God speaks to him out of the bush, right? Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, 
and Jacob. And now, as we heard, I'm sending you back to the people of Israel and to Pharaoh to tell them that uh, I want you to lead the people of Israel up out of their slavery in Egypt and into the land of Canaan that I promised your forefathers long ago. And Moses' response is basically, (laughs) yeah, about that, um, God. Just uh, a couple questions, if you don't mind. Um, When I, you know, when when I go back to the people of Israel, and you know, especially Pharaoh, and I say to him, um, I was wandering around in the heat of the desert, and uh, I saw this weird burning bush, and you won't believe what happened. God spoke to me out of this bush, right? And he told me that um, I'm supposed to lead the people of Israel out of slavery and up into the promised land. Uh, I think it's likely, no disrespect God, I think it's likely that they're going to ask me, what's his name, this God? who spoke to you, right? And at this point, it's really important for us to understand what question exactly Moses is asking, all right? Moses is not asking when he says to God, what is your name? He is not asking, which God are you? All right, he he already knows which God he is because earlier in verse six, when God first spoke to him out of the burning bush, he said, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knows it's the God of Israel. When he goes to the people of Israel, they're going to know that it's their God who has sent him to him. Which God are you is not the question. The question Moses is asking when he says, what is your name? The question he's asking is, what kind of a God are you? He's asking about God's authority and his power, right? Because you can imagine, again, Moses saying to God, um, God, no disrespect, but uh, your people have been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And uh, I'm not sure, I think you know this, but not clear, but uh, Egypt has all sorts of gods of their own. And they control everything there. They control the Nile, they control the crops, they control the animals and all the livestock, they control night and day, and they control life and death. And of course, in the story, in the plagues, we're going to see who controls those things, right? But for, at this point, Moses' legitimate question is, you know, what sort of authority and power do you have to tell me to go and do this outrageous thing? And the answer that God gives to that question, you see, the answer that God gives is, my name is I am. It's um, Hebrew, it's translated, or in Hebrew it sounds like Yahweh. In your English Bibles, it's often translated the Lord, but with capital letters, right? That's important to know. To set it apart from the ordinary word for master, which is translated Lord with lowercase letters. When it says Lord, capital letters, that's the name Yahweh, which means I am. And and this name answers the question that Moses is asking by revealing something very important about Israel's God. Namely, that he simply is. He always has been. He is now. He always will be the same God. The technical term for what God is saying here is Theologians call it is aseity or self-existence. And what it means is that there are only ultimately two sorts of things in the whole universe. There's created things, which is everything except the creator, and then there's the creator. And everything which is created 
depends upon the Creator moment by moment for its existence. Without the Creator, nothing else would exist. It would just all collapse into non-existence. But the Creator depends on no one and no thing for His existence. He simply is. You see, And that's actually also what the burning bush is a symbol of, right? The fire is a a symbol of God, but the fire isn't dependent on the bush because the bush isn't consumed. The fire just seems to exist of itself, right? And this is a, um, <clears throat> a profound revelation about who God is. And now armed with this name and with this knowledge that the name imparts about the fact that Israel's God is the great I Am and what that means about His power and His authority as the creator and sustainer of all things, Moses and the Israelites are able to face Pharaoh and the mighty power of Egypt. And you notice here in verse 15, then God says, this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. In other words, this name Yahweh is the name that God is giving to His people, to those who are in a saving covenant relationship with Him. So that throughout the generations, they might know God in this way as the great I am, as the one who has all power, as the one who simply is. In whatever situation, they may find themselves. And they may respond to God in light of that great revelation with worship and love and faith and obedience. And so... The main point that I want you to see in this first passage is that this name of God, Yahweh, reveals something very important about who God is to His people. Namely, something about His self-existence and His power and His authority as the Creator. Okay, <clears throat> so let's fast forward then in the biblical story to the second passage that uh, Ellie read for us. The end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. And let's just read verses 18 to 20 again. Jesus came and said to the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. <clears throat> and so the background to this story, you may remember, is that after the resurrection of Jesus, before His ascension and His final return to the Father in heaven, He meets with His disciples, right? And He gives them this mission, which is to be the primary work of the church until He returns again. And that mission is to go into all the nations and all the places and peoples of earth and to make men and women to be disciples of Jesus, right? And we learn here that that process of making disciples of Jesus involves two things in particular, the second of which is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Which is, of course, what it means to be a disciple. It means to have Jesus as your teacher and that you are living your life as much as you are able and by God's grace according to His teaching and His example. You're seeking to put his ways and his teaching into practice 
every day. But the first thing that Jesus says we're to do in the connection with this process of making disciples is to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so, here in this passage, baptism is uh, the outward sign of being a disciple of Jesus. It's the outward sign of being brought into a relationship with Jesus in which you confess Him as your Lord. Right In verse 18, Jesus just said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right, God has given Him all authority to rule over all of creation as the King on God's behalf. And so we confess Him as the Lord of creation and Lord of our lives. And to be a disciple of Jesus means to confess Him as our Savior. To believe that He has dealt with the problem of our sins and has purchased our forgiveness by His sacrificial death on the cross. And of course, to confess Jesus and be His disciple means to confess Him as our teacher, as I just said, to seek to put into practice in our day-to-day life all that He has taught us in His ways. And baptism is not only an outward sign of this personal relationship with Jesus as our master, as our teacher, and we as his disciples. It's also, of course, an outward sign of our relationship with the church community, with others who profess these same things about Jesus. Here's the point I want you to see for today. Notice that the name with which we are identified in this baptism when we become disciples of Jesus, is not simply the name Jesus. Right? I mean, you would have thought that if I'm becoming a disciple of Jesus, the outward sign of that would be that I would be baptized in the name of Jesus. Which would make a certain amount of sense, actually. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, when you become my disciple, the outward sign of that is that you're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the name that is placed upon us when we are baptized as followers of Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what does this teach us then? It teaches us that when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, through faith, and we become His disciples, we at the same time, of course, come into a relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And I hope you can see that this statement of Jesus about our baptism actually contains the whole doctrine of the Trinity in embryonic form. Because in this new name of God that is given to us in our baptism, we see that the The three persons who uh, reveal themselves to us in Holy Scripture, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are put on equal footing, as it were, as three divine persons. It's unimaginable that we would be baptized into the name of one divine person, a holy man, and an impersonal power. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. He's teaching that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three divine persons, which is why we are baptized into the name of all 
three. And then notice the fact that there is one name, not three. Did you catch that? We're not baptizing in the names, plural, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This fact points to the fact that these three divine persons are one God, and this is our one God's name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this um, teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity, which is contained here in a very brief and embryonic way, is of course fleshed out more for us in, in the rest of Scripture, where we see that these three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, share equally and exhaustively and eternally in everything that it means to be God. And that is why they are one God. So, for example, in your mind, if you could somehow conceive of everything that it means for the Father to be God, and you imagine some probably eternal list of things, that all of this, this is what is true of the Father because He is God, And then you were to turn your attention to, now what is true of the Son because He is God? That list would be identical to this one. And would be identical to the list you would have for the Holy Spirit as well. The three distinct persons share in precisely the same divine attributes. And they share exhaustively in them and equally and have shared in them from all eternity. Maybe it'll help to think about this way. If I took any three human persons, let's say I took uh, Noah and Brooke and Colin, and uh, I consider each of these three persons is truly human. They each share in a human nature. And in some way, there there are things about each of them that reveal to us what it means to be human. But if I consider what it means for Colin to be human, and I create a list of this is what it means for Colin to be human, and then I consider what does it mean for Brooke to be human, those two lists are going to be different. Neither of them exhaustively reveals what it means to be human. And if I put Noah and Brooke and Colin together, the three of them together give a fuller picture of what it means to be human. But with the three divine persons, that's not true. If I consider what it means for the Son to be divine, and then I say, well, let me add to that now, what does it mean for the Father to be divine? Nothing new is added. Because they all three share in the same divine nature they all share exhaustively in the same divine attributes that is why in the gospel as we saw last week jesus can say if you've seen the father you've if you've seen me you've seen the father right he's not saying that he is the father there's a distinction between the father and the son but he's saying when you when you look at me as the son of god and whatever you see in me about god it is exactly the same thing that's true of the father So that whatever I reveal to you about God is precisely what is true about the Father as well. And that's why Jesus can then later say, I'm sending the Spirit to you and I am coming to you. Again, he's not saying that he is the Spirit. But he's saying that everything that the Holy Spirit reveals about God is true of the Son and the Father as well. The only distinction among the Father and the Son and the Spirit is their distinction as persons, their personal relations with one another. In a way that is very mysterious and hard for us to fully grasp, 
each of those three distinct persons participates and shares in exactly the same divine nature, what it means to be divine. This is the great doctrine of the Trinity. And, and what, I, <clears throat> what I just want you to see this morning as we look at these passages is that in the Old Testament, God gave His people a name. The name Yahweh. Which revealed something profound about who He is. And now in the New Testament, it, it revealed again that God was powerful, self-existent, all-knowing, con- all all-controlling. Now in the New Testament, God further reveals Himself through a new name. The name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that new name reveals something very profound about our God. That He is one God existing as three distinct persons. <clears throat> now, um, apologize and have a drink of water. <laughs> one clarification. In giving us a new name, God is not saying that he has somehow changed, right? God has always and only been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is how he is always and eternally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the way in which God has revealed that awesome truth to us is that he has unfolded it over time and in various stages in history. So, for example, we know from the teaching of Jesus and apostles that it is primarily the Father who reveals himself to us as Yahweh in the pages of the Old Testament. Although anything that, that is revealed about the Father in the Old Testament is also true of the Son and the Spirit. And there are definitely hints of the personal existence of the Son and the Spirit in the Old Testament as well. But it is with the incarnation and in the Gospels and the coming of Jesus that the Son of God is fully revealed to us. And then, of course, from the day of Pentecost and in the life of the church, the Holy Spirit is fully revealed to us. The great um, Presbyterian theologian B.B. Warfield had a helpful illustration, I think, on this particular point. He said, imagine that you are standing outside a house on a dark night, and, and you're looking into the wind, uh, through a window into the front room, but the lights aren't on in the house either. And so as you're looking into that room, you can tell that there's, there's certain things in the room. You can see it looks like there's a couch over there, but you can't really tell what color it is or what the style is. And then there, maybe that's a fireplace in the back of the room. And, and then it looks like there's a, a desk with some books on it here, but you can't make out what the books are. And, and as you're looking into that room, someone walks in and turns on the light. And suddenly, everything becomes clear. The room has not changed, right? It's the same as it was before. Your ability to perceive the room correctly has changed because of the light. And and the new light helps us to understand who our God is, is the incarnation and the coming of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day. So, I was, uh, when I did my pastoral internship, at the church that I attended while I was in seminary, I was placed in charge of the college ministry. And I remember on one occasion, I had one of the pastors from the church, um, this is a big city church in Philadelphia, I had one of the pastors of the church come and, and teach the students on the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, actually, as it turns out, coincidentally, the pastor who came was a young man named Phil Riken, who I know some of you know is now the president of Wheaton College in Chicago. So Phil came, and he did a wonderful job explaining uh, probably much better than I've done today, the doctrine of the Trinity. 
And afterwards, during the question and answer time, I'll never forget, one of the students said with a somewhat condescending tone of voice, to be honest, he said, yeah, I mean, this is interesting and all, but what practical difference does it really make? To which Phil replied, well, if you don't know the doctrine of the Trinity, you don't know and worship the true God. Or at the very least, you know and worship the true God very imperfectly. And your Christian life and experience will be deeply impoverished because you do not know Him as He truly is. And so that's always stuck with me. It's like, yeah, that seems pretty relevant and important, practically speaking. But of course, there are many other things that we could say in terms of what are the practical implications of what we believe about our God. And uh, today, actually, I had planned on sharing three implications, since uh, we're speaking on the Trinity. Um, But I see now that I was a little overly ambitious with my time. And Ryan Evanson reminded me at the men's bonfire last night that nobody likes 55-minute sermons. So uh, instead, I'm going to try to just give uh, one important practical implication of the, uh, what we believe. <laughs> Ryan told me that he's a straight shooter and that he can take anything, so I figure I can call him out in the sermons now. <clears throat> One practical implication of the, what we believe about our God, and then I'll close. And I think the implication I want to discuss uh, has to do with missions. Because you see, the, um, the doctrine of the Trinity is the crucial element in our interaction with Islam, which is increasingly prevalent around the world and is certainly very prevalent here in the Twin Cities. When I, um, I have a friend who actually who is a missionary in a Muslim country in the Middle East, and uh, several years ago he told me, uh, he just said, Adam, you should come join us over here. But then he said, but if you do, you have to get your doctrine of the Trinity straight. Because there's a very real sense in which Islam began with a rejection of the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm not sure if you're aware, but the prophet Muhammad was exposed to Christianity through merchants and traders who were passing through Arabia, where he lived. And he found the doctrine of the Trinity to be particularly offensive. So much so that in the Quran, in Surah 5 and verse 73, he says... They do blaspheme who say that Allah is one of three in Trinity. For there is no God but one God. And so how do we respond to that deep difference of opinion when we're interacting with our Muslim friends and neighbors? And you know, I think rather than just you know, reacting viscerally to that, denial of what's at the heart of our faith, I, th- I think it would be much better for us to say, well, you know, let, let's think about the implications of what each of us believe about God for a minute, right? Because if God is unipersonal, that is, one nature existing in one person, as Islam teaches, then it's difficult to see how Allah can be loving or relational. Because to be so, you see, requires another to be the object of your love 
and to enter into relationship with. But according to Islam, before creation and for all eternity past, Allah was alone. And so loving another and being in relationship with another is not something that is essential to Allah's nature. And in fact, in the Islamic doctrine of God, the emphasis uh, tends to be that Allah is pure power and will. Which is why the main thing that Allah asks of His creatures is not love or entering into an intimate personal relationship, but is submission to His will. In fact, you may know the word Islam actually means submission. And by way of contrast, the triune God of the Christian faith before creation and for all eternity past existed in a community of three persons who delight in and love one another eternally. And that is why the primary thing that the Christian God asks of us is what? That we would love Him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. That is why as human beings made in the image of God, living in community and experiencing loving relationships with another person is one of the most profoundly satisfying and deeply human things that we do. Because it is of the very nature of our God to exist in community and to love and live in relationship, you see. That is why in John chapter 17, Jesus prays one of the most amazing things He prays throughout the Scriptures. He's praying to the Father, and He says, Father, I pray that these disciples of Mine, I don't remember the exact words, but basically what He says is, I pray that they would be brought into that same fellowship of love and delight that we have enjoyed with one another since before the world began. And I don't think it's too difficult to imagine to actually see in history the two very different kinds of societies that will grow out of the consistent application of those two very different views of God. And so when we have chance and opportunity, God's providence, to interact with our Muslim friends and neighbors, do not avoid the doctrine of the Trinity. For it's the crux of the matter. And talking about the nature of our God might be the very thing that resonates in the heart of your Muslim friend draws them to love and to know the one true God. The, um, <clears throat> the great Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas wrote, love is born out of a contemplation of the object of our love. Again, we cannot love that which we do not know. And the way we come to know the object of our love is by contemplating it, by the intentional and focused placing of our mind on the object of our love to, to understand it more fully, to know it more exhaustively, and to delight in it more completely, you see. And it's as we contemplate our God, we grow in our love for Him. So what these passages, and actually what the Nicene Creed help us to do is to contemplate, to set our minds 
on our triune God by thinking, first of all, of the three divine persons that we meet in the pages of Holy Scripture. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and let your mind meditate on their distinctiveness as persons and on their, the distinct role that each of them plays in the one divine work of creation and redemption. Think about those things. Praise the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for their distinctive roles in that way. And as you do so, remind yourself over and over again that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, these three distinct persons, equally and eternally and exhaustively share in the same divine attributes. They are one God. And in that way, your thought will move from the three persons to the one God and then back to the three persons. And as we think about our God and grow in our understanding and in our worship, we will know Him more and more and we will love him more and more completely. Let us pray. Triune God, <clears throat> Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we are baptized in your name. We praise you for this awesome revelation of yourself that you have given us. Help us to know you as you are, as you've revealed yourself to us, that we might love you and delight in you. In the same way that you, Father, Son, and Spirit, have loved and delighted in one another for all eternity. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. This has been a ministry of City Life Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. We hope you were encouraged by this teaching. Thank you for listening, and please contact us at info at citylifetc.org if we can be of service to you. Peace be with you.